You may be seated. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with, with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, welcome to week 9 of our renovation series that has us walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we made our way through Ezra, and last week we made it to Nehemiah. And as you remember, if you remember, Nehemiah opens with a crisis that quickly creates the action of the entire book, a book that tells us of God's returned people from exile, rebuilding the broken walls of Jerusalem. And yet even greater than that, what we're going to see is God direct history according to his promises while rebuilding his people according to his word. And last week we saw Nehemiah displaying a broken heart about broken walls. And that was likely not the first time that Nehemiah had heard about the people, had heard about the condition of Jerusalem with its broken down walls and burned gates. Yet it was the moment that God began to grip his heart and God began to lead him into a direction, a direction toward the need, toward where the need was. And think about this. God wasn't just breaking Nehemiah's heart. God was calling his name. He was calling his name, making it very clear. And before we dive in today, I think it's important for us to be reminded that we are often tempted to look at the men and women in the Bible in a way that is not helpful. In fact, we often look at them in a way that is harmful to us. For oftentimes, we are tempted to look at them not as ordinary people, but as extraordinary people, and in so doing, we approach them as if they are different people than us, as if we are so inferior and they are superior. And when we do this, the stories of the Bible become a burden to us instead of being truths that lift us up and inspire us to know the God that they knew. Now, do you ever feel intimidated when you read and hear all the wonderful real-life stories of the men and women of the Bible. One writer summed it up this way. I thought this was very interesting. He said, For me, growing up in Sunday school was more frustrating than inspiring. Each week's lesson gushed with biblical heroes, champions of God, each more grand than the last. It wasn't as though I didn't believe these accounts. I did. It was just their heroic deeds didn't compute with my underachieving world. I squirm when hearing about David dropping Goliath or Daniel surviving the lion's den. They seem more fictional than real, more make-believe than true. Elijah at Mount Carmel, Moses at the Red Sea, intimidated my empty bio sheet. Don't get me started with Noah, Gideon and his 300, Ezekiel and those dry bones, Joshua's demolition derby at Jericho, Samson's uh, strength, Paul's insight, Peter's charisma, Stephen's boldness. And then he wrote, stop, my heart can't take it anymore. And oftentimes, if we are not careful, we read of amazing, incredible stories of amazing, incredible men and women of the Bible. And instead of being encouraged and strengthened by them, we let... Our own insufficiencies keep us from pursuing the God that they serve. Listen, if we re really pay attention when we read the Bible, we will come to discover that they, these men and women of the Bible, are us. 
But even greater so, we will come to see that they serve the same God that we do. Or in a different stand, we serve the same God that they do. And we all start at the same baseline. So whether it be Moses or whether it be you or me, we all start at this baseline. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is their baseline. That is our baseline. Therefore, that truth frees us so that we don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to pretend that we're something we aren't. So same baseline, yet there is no ceiling for the believer whose heart and mind is focused on the glory of God. So this morning we are going to focus on Nehemiah's heart to build, in which we will see Nehemiah's beautiful heart for his God, for a people, and for a work that God had given him. Chapter 1, if it could be summed up in a word, that word would be prayer. Because that is what we see Nehemiah doing in chapter 1. Well, if Nehemiah 2 could be summed up in a word, that word would be action. Because now we see Nehemiah begin to go to work. So let's jump in this morning and see the heart of Nehemiah for God in action. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Nehemiah 2 together and then begin to unpack these verses so, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, he was the cupbearer. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate or to the king's, and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. 
And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Lord, help us in these next few moments to see the heart of Nehemiah for you, the heart of Nehemiah for a people, the heart of Nehemiah for a work. And help us, God, just to hear your, your word to us today. Lord, change our heart. Break our heart, God, for what breaks yours. Move us, Father, into action, we pray, by your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. When we think about what we just read in the picture of the heart of Nehemiah, I think of Proverbs 4, 23 that says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance or with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life or the springs of life. So Proverbs tells us this, keep your heart because your heart will control your life. You know, in the human body, the heart is essential for living. So I am not a doctor. I am not a scientist. I've never played one on TV. So none of those things. But what little I know about human biology, I know this. When the heart stops, you stop. So when the heart stops, you stop. Yet as Christians, we don't just have a human heart that produces physical life. As Christians, we also have a spiritual heart that produces and maintains our spiritual life. It's all about the heart. I think of the words of J.C. Ryle who wrote this. He says, the heart must be the principal point to which we attend in all the relations between God and our souls. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me your heart. Every single one of those answers comes straight from the word of God concerning our heart. So this morning I want to lay before us the heart of Nehemiah, the heart that he had not just for a people, but the heart that he had for his God. For God was breaking his heart and he immediately found himself pursuing the very heart of God, pursuing the work that God had laid before him and called him too. So we're going to see three different aspects of the heart of Nehemiah this morning. The first is this. Nehemiah had a heart that was captured by the passion of God. Nehemiah had a heart that was captured by the passion of God. Listen, what is the passion and desire of your heart? 
Does it match the passion and desire of God's heart? And in order for us to answer that question, any of us, we need to know how the Bible answers the question of what is on God's heart. And let me just tell you this. Ultimately, God has a passion for his own glory. So God is passionate about him being glorified because there is no greater glory than God. So the greatest thing God could ever do is say, glorify me because I know who I am. May you know who I am. And if you know who I am, you will glorify me as well. But not only are we able to glorify God, God doesn't do that independently of us as if we don't matter. No, we are able to know God. We are able to glorify God and we are able to enjoy God now and we will enjoy him forever. But just think about the heart of Nehemiah here. Nehemiah's heart reflected the heart of God. We see this when we look at verses 1 through 3. For four months, Nehemiah had fasted and prayed and sought the face of God over Jerusalem. Yet the hurt in his heart had not gone away. Nehemiah had hid the pain in his heart for four months, but he could no longer hide that pain. Unfortunately for him, he now found himself sad in the presence of the king as the cupbearer. And Nehemiah knew the law. It didn't matter what was going on in your own life. When you came before the king, you had to have a smile on your face. No frowning faces, no heavy hearts before the throne. The unwritten law, when you stood before the king, was this. Control your countenance or lose your head. That was it. Control your countenance or lose your head. Those were the only two options available for the king's servants, but Nehemiah couldn't hold it in any longer. And as far as Nehemiah could tell, that burden was about to cost him his life. And let's be honest, it would have been God's fault because God gave him the burden. God put that burden on his heart and would not let it go. Here's a good question for us. What if your heart or my heart could only reflect the heart of God? What if our hearts could only reflect the heart of God? How much different would things be in our lives? How would our lives look different? And not only did Nehemiah reflect the heart of God, we see Nehemiah pursuing communion with God in verses 3 and 4. Look at it. It says this. Let me make sure I'm in chapter 4. Okay. Makes sense. And I said to the king, let the king live forever, so I'm no threat to you. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in ruins, its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So what do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven. When asked a follow-up question by the king, the only thing that Nehemiah could do was pray. And think with me here, Nehemiah had already shown us that he was a man of prayer, fasting and praying for four months. Now he shows us something different. Nehemiah shows us, hear this, that there are literally two different types of prayers, two aspects of praying. The first is planned prayer, by which we set aside an intentional block of time to get before God, to get in his word, to pray to him. We call that a quiet time. It's what Nehemiah had been doing for four months, fasting and praying. But then secondly, there is what's called responsive prayer or spontaneous prayer by which we encounter moments in our lives where 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 we're exactly there, where, where our life and the circumstances of our life demand wisdom that we don't have, 
power that we don't have, peace that we don't have, patience that we don't have, help that's not within us. And we're, we're faced in those moments. And in that moment, Nehemiah basically said this, Okay, God, I prayed about it earlier, but I need your wisdom right now. God, I prayed about it this morning, but right now I sure need your peace. God, I prayed about it this morning, but right now I need your comfort to wash over me because I am shaking right now and I don't know what to do. I'm just going to trust you, God. So you had these two types of prayer being established here. Planned prayer when we set aside that portion and then spontaneous prayer when the demands of life hit us and we understand our need for his presence. In order for us to have or us for our relationship with God to flourish and be vibrant, both of these things need to be present in our lives. Set time to get alone with God, to seek his face, as well as times where circumstances of life and things, we just call out to God, where our relationship with God grows. And here's the deal. Here's the beautiful thing. Yes, we're able to set aside that time with God where we are getting his word and we pray, but that's not the only God we get. For the Bible says he is our very present help in times of trouble. So meaning this, if you find yourself in a place where you can't open your Bible and you're not alone, guess what? You can still call out to God. You can still cry out to him and he still hears us. But let me also say this, if you don't have a set time of prayer, and if you don't seek God throughout the day, you're not robbing God, you're robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself of what God has promised to give you. And what we see from Nehemiah's prayer in this moment is that the need for strength begins with the presence of weakness. Listen, in our world, we don't like to talk about weakness. In our world, weakness is unbecoming. In our world, weakness is offensive. Yet in God's economy, we must come to God as what we are. We are weak, recognizing him for who he is. He is strong. We're weak. He's strong. We can't. He can. We're not. He is always the great I am. May we never forget that, who he is, and coming to him, even in our weakness, we find grace and we find help. And then what we also see in, in thinking about the passion of God is Nehemiah's heart reflected the stirring of God. If you think about verse 5, Nehemiah was not content just to have an emotional encounter with God, not why his people were in distress. And if, we're, if we keep being honest, and church is a good place to be honest, we are often content just to have an emotional encounter with God. And then we walk out the doors of a church and we forget that we live among a people who do not have the hope that we have. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we confuse, hear this, understanding the word of God for obeying the word of God. And there is a huge difference. Listen, when our hearts are captured by the word of God, we will obey the word of God. We will act in accordance with what God is telling us. Oh, that God would capture our hearts with his passion, with his heart, with the communion that he wants to have with us. But then second, we see that Nehemiah had a heart that was confident in the provision of God. 
Nehemiah had a heart that was confident in God's provision. So as we keep reading, when we get to verse 6, we see that although there is a healthy sense of fear in Nehemiah, in the presence of the king, Nehemiah also displays a confidence that cannot be ignored. And where is his confidence coming from? It's coming from the word of God. He's confident in God's word. Last week, we saw Nehemiah praying in Nehemiah 1, and Nehemiah was praying through chunks of Scripture. So what he was doing is he was letting God's word roll right back up to God. And he was saying, God, you said this, you said this, you said this. And remember, what we said was Nehemiah wasn't reminding God of what he said. Nehemiah was reminding himself of what God had said. Because God doesn't forget. Who does? We do. We forget and there are times in our lives that we need to remember what God's word says in every situation of our lives. And if we would remember, we would be confident as well. But think about the provision here. First of all, we look at verse 6, God redeems our time. The king asked for a time period. And Nehemiah gave him a time that pleased the king. And the question I pray for us in this moment is this. Does the way that we use our time please the king? Does the way that we use our time, listen, God is able to redeem wasted time in our lives, unproductive time. God is able to redeem that. But the question for us is how are we able to use the most unproductive moments of our day to bring glory to God? How are we able to use that time? God redeems the time as he did with Nehemiah. But God also supplies our needs. And look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted what I asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. And I absolutely love this part. For Nehemiah went from being cautiously fearful in the presence of the king to basically getting out his supply list and saying, here's what I need. Here is what I need. And think about this. Where did Nehemiah get the boldness? He got the boldness from the word of God because the word of God said that if God's people had turned back from God and God led them away from the promised land. Yet if God's people would turn their faces back to God, God would reestablish the walls of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah wasn't just living on a wing and a prayer here. Nehemiah was living with confidence in the word of God. He was basically saying this, God, you said this. I'm doing this. Therefore, I'm going to believe what you said will happen if and when we do this. That you promised provision that's going to happen. And think about this. Sometimes that provision comes through other people. Sometimes God meets our needs through others. Sometimes God even meets our needs through lost people. Why? Because the devil's had it long enough. I mean, God is more than able. And we see God supplying our needs, and then God blesses our path. I love the end of verse 8. It says this, the good hand, the good hand, because God doesn't have a bad hand, the good hand of my God was upon me. What an amazing declaration. Amen. Nehemiah had just asked the reigning king of Persia to allow him to go and refortify a city that had already been conquered. And Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He also asked the king to pay for it. And the king says, yes, 
Don't miss this. Don't miss how good that is. And the practicality of Nehemiah's story is displayed in the fact that there are no burning bushes in Nehemiah. There is no parting of the seas in Nehemiah. There are no, there's no suspension of the laws of nature in Nehemiah. No walking on water. In fact, there are no miracles mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's just the quiet hand of the sovereign God at work leading and preserving his people. And if you're taking notes, write this down because we need to hear this and we need to ponder on this. And that is this. Never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. Never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. Listen, God is always at work. He's always at work. God's good hand. Did you know this? That every single day in your life, God is working. Every day, God is at work all around you. The problem is this. You refuse to join him in his work. So you don't see his work because you refuse to join him in his work. But God is at work every single day. If we would listen, if we would just open our ears, there are conversations by which we can say, how may I pray for you? Or let me tell you what the word of God says about this. There are conversations every single day where God is working all around us, yet we act like we can't see it. Oh, may God show us he is at work. He's always working. And his hand is good. His hand is good. He is working all things for our good. So confident in the provision of God. But then lastly, third, Nehemiah had a heart that was committed to the plan of God. His heart was committed to God's plan. And when we think back to the beginning of this chapter, even as Nehemiah had prayed, he had also planned and prepared. He wasn't just praying for four months. He was planning. So when the time came, he told the king exactly what he needed. But when he gets to Jerusalem, what does he do? Well, first of all, he inspects the context before him. We see this in verses 11 through 15. Nehemiah didn't just go into Jerusalem with guns blazing saying, here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's what you're going to do. No, he took time to inspect the context around him. In fact, he did not tell anyone what God had laid upon his heart to do. It all began with him through an inspection. He inspected the city. And I think there's times in our lives, listen, we need to inspect the context around us. We need to inspect the people around us. Here's the great inspection for us. Is the little circle around us getting darker or is it shining more light? Are people that are around us, are they receiving the light of the glory of God shining through us? Or is our circle growing more and more dark? What kind of impact are we having on the needs around us? And then there are times in our lives that we would do well to continually self-inspect. Or really God inspect, as David did in Psalm 139, where David prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We would do well. We would do well to have a self-inspection before God where we would say, God, search me. But don't just search me, God. Show me. Show me. Show me the areas in my life that are not matching according to your word. But here's what we also need to remember, that Nehemiah wasn't inspecting the wall so that he could demean or criticize the people. I love that, that Nehemiah doesn't inspect the walls and then say, how dare you let the situation get this bad? You know what that says about you? No, Nehemiah doesn't do that. Instead, instead, he inspects it because 
He wants to build it back up. It's one thing to inspect the context around us so that we can tear it down even more. It's another thing to inspect it so that we can build it up. And we can build it up by the word of God for the glory of God. But don't miss this. The plan of God also involved a community. Nehemiah involved the community around him. Look at verses 17 and 18. You see it on the screen. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble, hear this, that we are in, not the trouble that you're in, that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Then it says this, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And they said, let us rise up and build. Listen, after proper inspection and reflection, Nehemiah laid out his heart before the people, and I love the way he did it. I love the way he did it. He defined the problem, and he identified with the problem that they were in. He doesn't say, you're trouble. He says, we're in trouble. He doesn't say, this is your work. He says, this is our work. He then imparts faith and vision in a better life. Think about this. How hard would it be? All these people ever knew were broken down walls. It's all they had ever known. And yet here Nehemiah is saying, things can be better. Things can be better. He's stirring the heart of their people, of the people. And how do they respond? Let us rise and build. Let us rise and build. Basically, they're saying this, let's get to work. You place that vision in our hearts is now burning in our hearts as it was burning in yours, Nehemiah. Let's get to work. And this is how transformation begins, even when it's messy. One of my favorite people to read is, is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a brilliant German pastor and theologian. He was born in 1906. He died in 1945. At one point, he came over to the United States, and he worshipped in an African-American church in Harlem where their worship was celebratory in a way that he had never seen. And it so stirred his heart that before that time, he had said, I had just given my, my mind to the Lord, but now I am able to give my very heart to him. Then Dietrich was actually part of an assassination attempt on Hitler during World War II, and he was killed by the Nazis. So think about this. This is just my take here. A preacher theologian with an inflamed heart who wants to worship God boldly, proclaim truthfully, and also kill dictators? That's my kind of guy. I'm, I'm just, that's, that's my kind of guy. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the Christian community this way. He says, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even when there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and the riches which are there for all of us in Jesus Christ. So listen to what he's saying. Yes, this is hard. Coming together like this is hard because you have sinners involved. It will, what we do at times, feel insignificant. It will at times disappoint. 
Don't be surprised when those things happen. Why? Because you're here and I'm here. We're sinners trying to connect with other sinners for the purpose of becoming more and more like Jesus. There are times that is absolutely beautiful and there's times it's ugly. But we need to praise God for it. Let me just say this. Now, I love this, this service because most of you in here, you get it. You get it from this standpoint. There is this new fad that's happened probably the last 10, 15, 20 years where people will chase after whatever the new experience in church is. So a new church opens, it's exciting, and they chase it, and then five years later, a new church opens, and guess what? They're there. And then five years later, they're, and this is happening all over the place. And I am so thankful for many like you of the older generation. You get it. You get the reality of we, we want to be consistent. We want to be committed in where God has planted us and placed us, using us for his glory. That we're not chasing after all of those things. And we're understanding the picture of what it means, as the Bible says, for iron to sharpen iron. You know, how do you sharpen a blade? You sharpen a blade by nicking parts of it off. How is that happening in our lives? How are we being nicked off and how are we encouraging others? But I, I love this. Ultimately, this wasn't Nehemiah's task. This was the people's task. And if we're not careful, and please hear my heart here, if we're not careful, we will, as a church, adopt a philosophy in ministry where we are completely okay with a minority doing the majority of the work and then a majority benefiting from their work. And let me say this, just so we're clear, that is a long-term plan for failure. It's a long-term plan for failure. The goal is not a few of us locking arms in order to serve the majority of us. The goal is all of us locking arms to serve the community and our world for the glory of God. Amen. That's the goal. Locking arms together for the glory of God. In fact, I had to come up with this a long time ago based on the word of God. It's not my job to fulfill every role in ministry. There are, and I grew up with this. I grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s where many churches, they were content to burn the pastor out to do all the work of the ministry. When the pastor burned out and lost his family, guess what the church did? They moved on to the next pastor. They burned him out, lost his family, and they moved on to the next one. And then he came in with new ideas. They ran him off. And then they brought someone in. And the, the picture is this. Think about this. Look with me at Ephesians 4. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4 with me. I want you to see this. In Ephesians 4, the word of God from the Apostle Paul, beginning at verse 11. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Verse 11 says, And he, meaning God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, elders, bishops, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So who's to do that? The saints. The saints are to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Meaning, it is not my job solely to make disciples here. It's our job. It's not my job to evangelize our community it's our job Amen. it's not my job to go as far as god would allow us to go into the nations it's our job it's our job and let me just say this anytime we do that there's going to be opposition and we see it here 
We see it here in Nehemiah when we get to verses 19 and 20. And what we see is Nehemiah's response is that he entrusted the creator over him. And I love this. And we're going to talk about this more next week. And we're going to look at the opposition that Nehemiah faced. But as we, as we give ourselves more and more to what God would have us to do, we will face opposition. And I love what this opposition does. They come at Nehemiah and guess what they say? They say, are you rebelling against the king? And I love what Nehemiah does in verse 20, because guess what Nehemiah could have done? And guess what I would have done? I'd have pulled out like the draw four card and laid it down, boom, and said, there's a message from the king. I have the king's approval to do all this. I would have laid that trump card down, but Nehemiah doesn't. Instead, Nehemiah compels to a greater king, the God of heaven. He could have said, I have permission from the king of Persia, the greatest figure on earth right now. But instead, he says, no, this is God's doing. And then he says this to them, and you have no part in it. You have no part in it. When we give ourselves to the plan of God, we must, hear this, we must do so trusting the power of God. And what I mean by that is this. Please hear this. Even the strongest walls on this earth will not last forever. Do you understand that? They won't last forever. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is a lasting rock. Only he is our lasting fortress. Only he is a deliverer, a refuge, a, a shield, and a stronghold for us. Just as the walls defended the ancient people, Jesus is our strong and lasting wall of defense against sin and death. But here's what I know of all of us. In all of our lifetimes, we will see everything that we depend on. Family, relationships, finances, career, community, and more. All of those things, we will see all of them crumble like an old wall. All of them. We'll see them crumble like an old wall. And now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying those things aren't precious. And I'm not saying those things don't mean things to us. But here's the deal. If your confidence and your identity is in that, it will crumble. It will crumble. But we can find confidence that Jesus will always be with us. And praise God, he is for us. And if he is for us, who can stand against us? And here's the beauty. Nehemiah reminds us in some amazing ways of one who also set his face towards Jerusalem some 400 plus years later. Like Nehemiah, Jesus was sensitive to the suffering of his people. Jesus also left a palace, came down, and later he rode an animal also into Jerusalem. Jesus faced an onslaught of criticism and persecution, opposition, which continued to escalate until he was finally arrested, falsely accused, and nailed to a cross. Yet, praise God, death could not hold him. Couldn't hold him. Yet, Nehemiah's work in Jerusalem, although an important work, was not the most important work that ever took place in Jerusalem. There was a greater work that took place when Jesus came and hung on the cross for your sins and my sins. But here's what I know, and here's we read about it twice in Nehemiah 2. Through Jesus Christ, you and I can experience the good hand of our God upon us. 
Are you experiencing the good hand of God upon you? Oh, that you are. A work begins when we have a broken heart over broken walls. But this is not enough. It's never enough just to have our hearts broken. We must then allow our broken hearts to be transformed by God, by which they're transformed into hearts that build or into hearts that act. Listen, is there a work that God has set before you to do? Is there a calling upon your life? Has God called your name to a specific task or purpose? If you are here and you are a child of God, you have a purpose. If you are here and you're a child of God, you have a work to do. Now, that work might look different than the work that God called you to 30 or 40 years ago. But if you are here and you are a child of God, God still has plans for you. He still has plans for you. Don't act like, no, God, I'm going to just pass over and and let other people experience uh, the blessings of serving God. Why? If there is breath in your lungs, there's some way you can serve God. There's something you can do for his glory and for his church. How is your heart currently breaking for the physical and even more than that, spiritual needs around you? When was the last time you asked God to break your heart for what breaks his? And when was the last time you stepped out in action for what God was Leading you to do. Like Nehemiah, may God stir our hearts and may God lead us in a specific direction. Meaning closer to him and closer to the needs around us. And the task that he has called us to. Listen, no longer, don't don't live avoiding God's call upon your life. Embrace that calling. Embrace the, the way that God is breaking your heart. Again, let me say this. If you choose to live your life the last few years of your life not serving the Lord, it's not God's loss, it's yours. God loses nothing. But we might. There's people that God might want us, or that God wants us to reach. Not might, he wants us to reach. Oh, that we would give ourselves to the task that he has given to us. Remember this, we are weak. He is strong. And we glory in our weakness so that we can glory in his strength. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. And we're going to call the musicians forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together in this moment. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for Nehemiah. But Lord, we thank you that this isn't just his story. This is our story of you stirring our hearts, of you, God, doing a work in our lives, of you calling us to needs around us of you saying, as we have in the New Testament, let your light shine in us so that people may see our good works and it bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. Lord, today I pray, Father, that you would help us to see the the ways in which we can serve you, the ways in which we can make much of you, the ways in which, God, you might be calling our name as you called Nehemiah's name. Lord, just finish this time today in a way that brings you glory and honor. Lord, help us as a church not to be a place where a minority does the majority of the work. God, may we be a a people where the majority lock arms together and fulfilling the task that you have given to us. That is why I love Vacation Bible so much, Lord. It's one of the ways in which we as a majority lock arms for the sake of children hearing about you, Jesus. 
Just have your way. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.